And we pray all this, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Well, as we are starting to get back to some semblance of, of normal, uh, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles at the back out now. Uh, so you can grab one of those. We're going to be in John chapter 10, uh, 12, excuse me, wrapping up John chapter 12 this morning. Let me start with this, though. Uh, back in the mid-1700s, so just a few years ago, there was a massive spiritual revival going on in the United States. And when we look back on it now, we call it the Great Awakening. One of the, the key people that uh, historians, and as we look back at church history, that's, that's connected with the Great Awakening is George Whitfield. And George was, was used by God in those years in ways that few have been used ever. One of George Whitfield's good friends was Benjamin Franklin. I'm not sure if we're related. I was thinking about that this week. We'll have to go back and I'll have to take one of those DNA swabs or something to find out. But nevertheless, George and Ben Franklin were good friends. They met in Philadelphia in 1739, and their friendship lasted until Whitfield's death in 1770. And over the course of those 31 years, Franklin was the primary publisher of all of Whitfield's sermons and journals. And we can still find these today, of course. 45 times, George Whitfield had his sermon printed in Ben Franklin's newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. And eight times, his sermon filled the entire front page. Franklin published 10 editions of Whitfield's journals and sold thousands of reprints of his sermons. But their relationship went beyond just one printing for the other. It was more than just business. When Whitfield traveled to Philadelphia in his travels, on more than one occasion, he stayed with Franklin in his home. And while, uh, when Whitfield was criticized by another publisher or by some religious elite in another newspaper, Franklin would write and publish in his own newspaper a rebuttal. So for more than 30 years, their friendship continued and included regular personal correspondence by these things you'd have to write on a paper and put them in a box, and it would get delivered somehow, not email or text or anything like that. Yet, despite sending, spending so much time together, despite their friendship, and despite Whitfield's continued gospel presentation, Ben Franklin never responded in faith. In his autobiography, uh, Franklin wrote about George Whitfield. He said, he, Whitfield, used to sometimes pray for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers had been heard. What do we do with a story like this? And what do we do with, with similar stories of people we all likely know? People whose faces are maybe even coming to our mind. People that we, we, we love, we spent time with, we've shared the gospel with, and we've prayed for, we've been on our knees praying for, yet as far as we know, nothing has changed. Ben Franklin had heard and read sermons and gospel presentations from America's greatest evangelist. He spent hours talking with him about Jesus. He received dozens of letters in those 30 years and yet was unmoved. Why didn't he believe? Why does anyone reject Jesus? 
part of our calling as those who call ourselves followers of Jesus is to invite and call other people to faith in Jesus. That's a, a huge part of the Great Commission, right? It's not just, okay, you believe, great. It's no, go. Make disciples. Call them to something. Show them something. Because of our faith in, in, in God's grace and, and, and God's grace itself, we know that the joy comes from a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. So how do we understand unbelief? Can people be convinced? Can you talk someone into the kingdom? Or is this somehow all sort of set in stone at some time long before any of us were ever born? To understand these questions and to wrestle with these questions, we need to have an understanding or a theology of unbelief. As we've seen so far through John's gospel, we've been walking through this for uh, almost a year now, Uh, The crowds had witnessed some of Jesus' greatest miracles. They'd spent time with him. They'd heard even better sermons than George Whitfield's. Yet they still rejected him. But John, as he he wrote his gospel, he prepared us for this right in the prologue, didn't he? John 1, 11. Jesus came to his own people, and even they rejected him. In our passage this morning, we're going to see hopefully, two answers, or answers to two really important questions about unbelief. And just before I read it, let me suggest, this is one of the reasons why at Trinity Bible Church, we usually commit to uh, what's called expositional preaching, where we go verse by verse through books of the Bibles, because if I could choose, I would probably skip this one, if I'm honest. This is not an easy, warm, fuzzy passage to look at, but welcome. We love you. Thank you for being here. Let me read John 12, starting at verse 37. Therefore, or though, or even though Jesus had done so many signs before them, before the crowds, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Unto whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, spoke of coming Jesus. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. That's a really sort of heart-questioning, heart-wrenching verse, isn't it? They believed in him, but they didn't really want to tell anyone about it. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in the one who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, therefore, is what the Father has told me. That's a bit of a tricky passage, isn't it? And so our first question as it comes to these verses and, and many through the Gospel of John and elsewhere as well is this, what is unbelief? 
I think for us, when we think of, of unbelief, it, it's easy to equate unbelief with indecision, with, with not totally being sure and so not committing either way. Indecision is, is, is needing more information to be able to make an informed choice. It has to do with either not yet asking enough questions or not yet uh, asking the right questions to feel like you can commit to a decision. But in these verses, when we're talking about unbelief, and when Jesus calls out unbelief uh, many times through John's gospel, he's talking about something different. The unbelief in these verses isn't due to lack of information, right? It even opened. They saw the signs, they heard the words, but they didn't believe. The crowds had enough information to make a well-informed decision. And so here, unbelief is a conscious rejection of God and his word. That's how Jesus is defining unbelief for us here. It's a conscious rejection of God and his word. If we look at the second half of the passage, verses 44 to 50, we see Jesus really summarizing his message and his mission as well and, and emphasizing the close relationship between himself and the Father and between himself and his words and the words that have come from the Father. It's all so intricately tied together. And Jesus' point is that if you choose not to believe him, his signs, his, his works, his words, then you're actually rejecting God himself, he says in verse 44. But if you believe in him, that means you're also embracing God. And so choosing unbelief is willingly rejecting God. Look how closely Jesus ties himself to God in these verses. In verse 44, he says, to believe in me is to believe in God. In verse 45, to see me is to see God. In verse 49, to, to listen to me, to hear my words, is to actually listen to the words of God himself too. And so these words even remind us that it's, that it's only through Jesus that we can be accepted by God. There's no other way. If we reject Jesus, then on that last day, he says here, we will be judged for that unbelief, for willfully ignoring and choosing to reject God. Unbelief is a, as we said, a conscious rejection of God, but it's also a conscious rejection of his word. Look again uh, at those last couple of verses, 47 to 50, where, where Jesus ties a relationship not just between himself and God the Father, but him and his words. He says, if anyone hears my words, this is the important thing. The one who rejects me doesn't, and doesn't receive my sayings has that his judge. The, the word I've spoken is the judge. For I've not spoken on my own, but the Father himself sent me. He has given me a command to say everything I have said. And I know that his command is eternal life. So I speak, and I speak just as the Father has told me. Throughout the Bible, God has always worked and moved by his word. The very first page, the opening verses, God brought life by what? Speaking. By his word. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's word as the pathway to life and blessing. And then in the New Testament, a little bit later than where we are here, Paul writes, faith or belief comes from what's heard. And what's heard comes through the message about Christ in Romans 10, 7. See, God has always worked through his word. He's always used his word to call men and women to life and to salvation, which we heard about this morning already. Therefore, 
to believe in Jesus means we accept and embrace the word of God as well because Jesus has tied himself to that so closely. And so unbelief is not just the rejection of God, it's not just the rejection of Jesus, but it's a rejection of the word of God. And this can look like a lot of things, rejection of God's word. It can just be straight outright criticism, it can be denial, it can be neglect, not giving it proper attention, it can look like questions of relevance, wow, you know, this book is at least 2,000 years old, what could it possibly say to me today? But here's how it all comes back around. To reject the word of God also means to reject Jesus. See, it's kind of trendy. I don't know if trendy is the right word, but to look at Jesus and say, you know what, he's a pretty good guy. I can get behind what he said. He, he dealt with the poor. He talked about racism. He talked about gender equality. These are great kind of hot-button issues in our day. But you can't have or accept Jesus without embracing his teaching on everything. And that includes false teachers, ethics, purity, judgment, and even hell. You can't pursue a relationship with God apart from Jesus, and you can't pursue a relationship with Jesus apart from Jesus' word. These things are all tied together. And so that's how Jesus is defining unbelief for us. It's a rejection of him, which means also rejecting God and also rejecting God's word. Now, the second question, and here's where things get difficult and we want to approach it with humility and grace and hope. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Now, this question, I would say, is, is obviously harder to answer than to just pull out a definition of something, right? Right? John points us towards this question right at the beginning of the passage this morning when he says, even though Jesus had done so many signs, they did not believe him. They still couldn't believe him. So why, why not? They'd, they'd seen the signs. They'd, they'd seen the blind man given his sight and said, this has never happened before. Right? They'd, they'd seen or heard or, or been fed by Jesus. And again, as we, we look for an answer, I do want to tread lightly, but a bit firmly, because we're pulling our answer from Scripture, and again, filled with grace. The answer to this question is multifaceted. There's a lot to it. Sometimes, of course, it is just not knowing enough. There, there are people, there are billions, potentially, of people, 2,000 people groups on the planet that have never heard the name of Jesus. That's something we got to own as the church. Sometimes it's not knowing enough. Sometimes it's not understanding. But if we're using Jesus' definition of unbelief, which we just talked about, that's not what we're talking about here. Those answers come off the table. Ultimately, unbelief, which is a rejection, is the response of a heart in rebellion to God. A pastor and, and author, Mark Dever, put it this way. He said, unbelief never involves the mind alone. It's a spiritual state. It doesn't, it's just not an intellectual decision, but it's also a heart issue. Unbelief, he's, he's suggesting, is a heart posture. It means that, that no amount of pressure or coercion or force can make someone believe. That's why it doesn't work so well when Christianity tries to take over by the sword or by legislation or these sorts of things. Because unbelief isn't just head stuff, it's heart stuff. And it starts in every one of our hearts. 
And so understanding unbelief and, and why some people don't believe or choose not to believe or, or reject Jesus starts with understanding that our hearts are not right. Something's missing in them. It starts with an understanding of what the Bible calls sinfulness. A few generations ago, Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this. The prevalence of unbelief and indifference in the present, his present, our present too, shouldn't surprise us. It's just one of the evidences one of the evidences of that mighty foundation doctrine, the total corruption and the fall of man, that something's not right with us. How feebly, he says, we grasp and realize that doctrine. We only half believe in the heart's deceitfulness. Who's ever gone through the day and said, you know what, I'm not that bad. You know, sure, I've messed up here, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty good on the whole, right? John here pins the guilt of unbelief on the people. He says, even though they'd seen the signs, they had enough information. They'd heard the word. They'd been around. They'd heard the stories. Jesus wasn't new. He'd been around for a few years, and they're still rejecting him. Even though they'd seen the signs, they didn't believe him. And as we've seen in a few different passages, it's because they didn't want to. They were scared of, of the perception of others. They were scared of what it might mean for their home lives, for their family lives, for their careers, for all these things. But John also, go, also goes farther, and again, this is where it gets tricky. He says that their unbelief was necessary to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet in verse 38. And then John quotes two different passages from Isaiah. The first one is from Isaiah 53, which is the chapter where we, we see Isaiah prophesying of the suffering servant who we know to be Jesus, one who would come and, and suffer in the place of those who don't believe, those who are sinful and then believe in the servant, of course. In that chapter, Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus' death in the place of sinners. And so there's a, there's a real sense that, that, that there needs to be unbelief in order to send Jesus to the cross. Right? If, if Jesus came and everyone accepted him and he was wildly uh, accepted and no one was against him, he wouldn't have ended up on the cross. Right? It was the opposition that put him there. See, with, but without the cross, we're all still using John's language in darkness. And as Paul would later write, without the cross, we're all still dead in our sins. Right? This was Jesus' mission. He came to die, not to be cheered. If everyone celebrated him, he may not have even ended up on the cross. So there needed to be some unbelief. Now, this, of course, raises a really tough, even a troubling question. So did th God then make people unable to believe? Because that's what we read in verse 39, isn't it? And again, carefully, humbly, the short answer is yes. Now, this is a hard thing, again, for us to understand for sure, but John points us to Scripture to find the answer, so that's where we're going to go as well. There are a couple times in the Bible when we read and we hear about God hardening hearts so that he could get his will done, right? You can think of, of, of Moses and Pharaoh, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart again so that the thing continued. Later in Deuteronomy 29, we read about God hardening hearts and people wouldn't be able to believe. Isaiah picks up this language in Isaiah 6, which is the second chunk that John quotes here. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 says, And he said, God said to him, to Isaiah, 
Go and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now it sounds like God is saying, we don't want them to believe, because if they did, they'd be healed. That's troubling. We should wrestle with that. And John here, by quoting that passage, is saying, you know, the unbelief of the, the people here is a continued fulfillment of that prophecy, that continued fulfillment of Isaiah. They don't believe because they can't, because God hasn't called them to it. And so what we're seeing is kind of two interwoven truths here in John's explanation of unbelief. And the first is this, and it actually brings hope out of it. Belief isn't possible without God's work in our hearts. We talked about that earlier this morning, too. Belief isn't possible without God's work in our hearts. John Calvin wrote it this way, that, that faith or belief isn't born out of ordinary human faculties, but it is a unique and rare gift of God. And so the hope comes from this. We need God. We can't intellectually argue ourselves into faith or belief. God has to reveal himself to us. He's the one that does the work. He's the one that does the saving work. And he's the one that calls us to Jesus for salvation. It's not about us. It's about him. And the second truth is this, that, that God can choose for his own purposes, or God can, sorry, God can for his own purposes choose to harden hearts of those he wants to harden. Now for reasons that God only knows in this time, in this period when Jesus was speaking, he chose to harden these, this is important, already sinful hearts. And if I'm honest, I don't totally understand this. I'm not sure why God operates this way. He gives us hints, of course, and we'll get there. But he is God and I am not. And if I understood every little thing about God, then God would be no bigger than what I can wrap my head around. And let me tell you, that's not good news for anyone. So this is an area where we submit to God's authority because he is God and we are not. Yet, when we come at the handful of verses like this where it seems like God has chosen to deliberately devote people to destruction, his language somewhere, to, to harden hearts so they can't believe, it's important that we, we take these verses and, and read them within the context of all of Scripture. See, if we keep reading through the New Testament, we get to the end of the book of Acts, we get a little glimpse even of why God did this. At the end of the book of Acts, in, in Acts 28, we see the apostle Paul in prison in Rome. He's preaching, and lots of Jews are coming to him to hear, much like the crowds came to Jesus, right? And we're told that when he preached that one day from, from morning to evening, he had a mixed reaction. Some believed. Some didn't. Some were uncertain. And then Paul quotes these verses again. Therefore, he quotes these verses, sorry, and then unpacks them this way. Let it be known that this salvation from God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. He takes the same verse in Isaiah where he says, your hearts are hard, your eyes are closed, you're not going to believe this. And Paul says, fine, you're not believing right now, we're going to the Gentiles. And that's good news for me because I am not Jewish. See, whether or not we understand that God has a plan, he is in control, and whatever he decides to do is kind of by definition wise and just. 
Now sometimes, again, we, we don't want to leave this like this. Sometimes verses like this are used and taken to blame God. What kind of malevolent being would create someone just to judge them and then throw them into this created, eternal separation from God, this hell? What kind of God would do that? I could never follow a God like that. Maybe you've heard something like that. D.A. Carson, uh, who's a teacher and pastor and commentator, helpfully responds this way. He says, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate, arbitrary leader, cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to do what they themselves have chosen. See, here's where our, our theology of unbelief comes in, right? We are not morally neutral or morally pure. God, God didn't make us sinful. We chose that, and we choose that probably every day. But here's the good news. When Isaiah was given that message to preach, that, those, those hard verses, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, he kind of asked the Lord afterwards, this, this is hard. How long do I have to keep telling this to people, right? How long do I have to keep telling them? It doesn't matter what I say. You're not going to get it because God's upset. Your hearts are hard. All these things. But the next word, the first word of God's answer gives us great hope. He says, until. This is, this is kind of like, like, like Paul writing, but God, who is rich in mercy, in Ephesians 2, right? God says, no, until which means there is an end time. Any answer of a how long do I do this that starts with until means there is an end point. There is an end of the hardening of their hearts. There's an end of the the blinding of their eyes. There's a time when God will call all people to himself. And so, again, we have to be really careful not to dwell on the the handful of verses where we see God choosing to harden hearts and, and maybe even reads like he's doing this forever and they're lost and neglect the theme that goes throughout the Bible, start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, that God's desire is salvation for who? All. All. Every heart. Every people group. Every person. And that makes the call of every single follower of Jesus to go and tell people about the saving work of Jesus again and again and again, even if their hearts seem hard, even if their eyes seem blind. I read a story of uh, Hudson, I think it was, a missionary who went to, uh, to Bhutan. I may have mixed my missionary stories here, but he preached for six years without a convert. Six years in a far-off land. Was he a failure for that? there, time hadn't come. But it did come, right? Maybe in this moment, you're, you're thinking the same thing. Man, Jesus, I've, I've shared the gospel with my, my brother, my sister, my kids, my parents, whatever, for a long time, and there's just, there's just nothing. Don't stop. This is, this is God's work This is his timing. He can work. He does work. His desire is to draw all people to himself. The call of every single follower of Jesus is to go and tell people about the saving work of Jesus again and again and again so that God might work in their hearts, overcome their unbelief, and they might find joy and light and life. 
In Jesus' summary message, he promises that those who believe in him will not remain in darkness, but will have eternal life. In just a minute, we're going to turn to the communion table, uh, but let me wrap up with this from, from Matt Carter. He says, Belief in Jesus is not just a sentimental salve for our guilt-ridden consciousness, or consciences, excuse me, but belief in Jesus is deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. It's redemption from our sins and the penalty of death. It's the enjoyment of new life, the life God intended for us and created us for. Belief in Jesus is confidence in our renewed and restored relationship with the Creator, and it's the bedrock of our souls, the source of our lives, and lives of good works. He says genuine belief brings radical, complete, and lasting transformation of the whole person from the inside out. We opened our service talking about what is uh, salvation uh, and justification, and I love how it reminded us that salvation is the work of Jesus and justification is, or justification is the work of Jesus. Salvation is the process. I was listening to a podcast this week, um, and the guy was, the shang was Lecrae, uh, was saying, you know what, so often... Um, when we fall as Christians, we get beat up for it. Right? We, see it we see it in the media, we see it um, in the news, on social media. We, we maybe feel it ourselves, I did it again, how can God love me? He's like, here's what, here's what sanctification is. He's like, when, when, when your baby learns to walk for the first time, they, they don't get it, right? They stand up, they toddle along, and they wobble. When they fall down that first time, you don't say, you're the worst, baby. How can you not figure this out, right? No, no. We say, you did it. Two steps. Let's go for three, right? When we take our kids to the climbing gym for the first time or the swimming pool for the first time, we don't say, okay, uh, Michael Phelps swam this fast. Uh, Penny's swimming like this. Go. And when they don't break those rocks, how could you not do that, right? No, it's, it's a little bit step by step. And when, when we fall, when our kids fall, we get up, we turn to Jesus, and we try again. So we're going to take communion together. We're going to celebrate the work that Jesus has done for us, his, his death on the cross, his, his perfect life that, that gives us right standing with God. We're going to thank him for that work. We're going to remember that work. And, and by taking communion together, we're going to declare that we need that work in our lives. So let me pray, and then I'll pass the elements out. Jesus, Thank you for your word. And thank you for hard texts that make us dig in and, and question and wrestle and, and do our best to understand what, what they mean and what they mean for us. I pray that even this morning as we, we've wrestled with some hard verses that we wouldn't just say, okay, well, the preacher said this, so he must be right. Let's move on with our lives. But that you would stir in our hearts and help us to, to wrestle these things to the ground as, as much as we can. And give us faith to trust in you, God, for who you are and all that you've done where we need that. I pray for belief Maybe we've, we've heard Jesus' words, we've, we've seen his works, we've, we've experienced something in our lives by what he's done, and, and yet, for whatever reason, we're feeling like it's not enough. 
Holy Spirit, go after our hearts. Point the things out in our hearts that are keeping us from belief. Those areas that, you know, we say, oh, Jesus, you can have my heart, but not this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this. I'm better at managing this part of my life than you are, creator of the universe. Forgive our, and forgive my pride and arrogance in how I say that. As we turn to the communion table, Jesus, thank you for your bloodshed and your body broken for us. May we spend the next couple minutes um, in, in silence together just reflecting on, on all that is. In your name we pray. Amen.